Hey everyone! First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go! Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Dee, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of the Arts and Social Sciences, Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm speaking with Caitlin Setnicker, who's not only a dear friend of mine, but also a recent ANU anthropology graduate and current business designer at ThinkPlace, which is a cool consulting company. First, we talk a bit about Caitlin's honours thesis, about customer abuse in the service industry and the many factors that allow this kind of abuse to be acceptable and reproduced again and again. Don't worry, we share lots of fun stories along the way. Then we talk about pathways in consulting for recent anthropology graduates, where Often it is really confusing to see what life after a bachelor's degree in anthropology might look like and how skills taught in anthropology can be applied to consulting work to solve some of the complex challenges of today. Finally, we talk about creative anthropology, where cartoon meets ethnography in a most beautiful way. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and let us know what you thought about this episode. Feel free to share any of your fun customer service stories with us too. All right, that's enough from me. So here it is, my interview with Caitlin Setnicker. So to start off with, uh, you did your honours in anthropology two years ago. Yep, 2018. 2018, wonderful. Congratulations on passing and everything. Um, First class honours, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm extra. um, It was. (laughs) Extra congratulations. Yeah, of course, the the whole cohort all got um, first class. Oh, amazing. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant group of young women. But could you sort of just tell us a little bit about what your thesis was about? Yeah, uh, it would be my pleasure to, because um, I still get really excited talking about it and thinking about it, which I think is a very good thing for a thesis to do to a person. So um, essentially, it was about interactions between customers and retail staff, specifically abusive ones in which customers abuse retail staff. I was looking at the, the structural and cultural causes of that as a phenomenon, because it's sort of this thing that's very, very normalised. Um, pretty much any retail person would experience this at some point more often than not on like a weekly to daily basis. Yeah, I certainly have <laughs> experienced that as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I was fascinated by how little examination there is of this because I sort of approached it as a form of violence, a form of norm- normalized everyday violence in in our culture. So I took it from three different angles throughout the thesis. There's one chapter that's on the very micro level interpersonal relations that are at play in that interaction. And then the second chapter went into the cultural and historical precedences that lead to the ways that the situations are set up 
in that they take precedence in early 20th century um, department stores. Uh, There's a really interesting case for um, where that's kind of the model of modern retail comes from and the ways that the situations were specifically built in in that people who were working in the retail role were set up as a sort of servant to the customer who is acting as a master. And that obviously still has repercussions for the way that we now experience um, retail um, interactions as well. And then on some of the cultural side, the ways in which this kind of abuse is culturally ingrained. I can't imagine anyone who has worked in retail or hospitality not experiencing this in our society. Because the instance that I even bring up the idea after first hearing about your thesis, everyone has these stories of that happening to them and they go, oh yeah, no, this happened to me yesterday or last (laughs) week or um, like an hour ago. It's crazy how frequent it is just because it is so normalized it's crazy how frequent and it's crazy how everyone has a really crazy story (laughs) what's your crazy story I actually tell a few of my crazy stories (laughs) in the thesis the one that I'm remembering off the top of my head is oh the bag woman (laughs) (laughs) I like how you've remembered this by a specific keyword (laughs) bag woman so I worked in a major Australian department store (laughs) probably no big guesses for which one and the whole of the ACT was experiencing a major shortage on our shopping bags you know the bag that you put the merchandise in and then give to people and at that place we had a lot of frequent return customers so it's people I would see kind of on a weekly basis and there was this one woman in this case um, who was always quite nice to me um, and you know you remember those kinds of interactions well uh, if, if someone's especially nice to you I find and also when they're especially cruel <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah and um, she came on a Friday evening to buy I believe it was two big European sized pillows and uh, as she was buying them I informed her that unfortunately we wouldn't be able to give her a carry bag for them because we were experiencing a major shortage and Of course, I think it was probably reasonable to be a little bit miffed about that, um, having bought these two big pillows. But she absolutely lost lost her cool at me. And it was very upsetting because I'd already kind of had these really nice interactions with this Mm. person. And I I believe the the point I make with this story and the thesis is um, just how weak those connections are. In, in those retail settings, how weak those nice connections are because of the way that the situation is set up, that kind of kindness can be removed at any moment um, mm. with really no consequence and really no kind of thought from the other person. It seems kind of performative, doesn't it? Mm, absolutely, it is, yeah. Wow, I, yeah, um, I suppose, sure, it's a bit of an inconvenience, but at the end of the day, I think people forget that you're both human in that exchange. <laughs> yeah. So the funny thing is the point that I make in my thesis is not only do people forget about um, the the person that they're talking to, the um, retail worker has a reality outside of the moment that you, you are talking to them in. So you're talking to the checkout girl and because your interaction with them interpersonally only matters in that very moment, you lose sight of any kind of context that they exist outside of that. And you don't necessarily realize that there's going to be consequences for them outside of this moment if you were rude to them, for instance. But I think that these situations are actually set up in this way in some deliberate and non-deliberate ways by employers as well. 
And this isn't necessarily malicious, I don't think. For instance, uniforms is a huge one. The reason why uniforms exist is for various reasons. Um, Among them would be to visually identify a staff member, which is sort of a functional reason, um, a really practical reason rather. It's also to take away any outside kind of personality that can come through on the person's body. Um, So any kind of sign that they do not exist within that moment. Obviously, these are not things that these companies are thinking through. They're not like sitting in a boardroom <laughs> scheming that. Um... How can we take away this person's subjectivity? <laughs> Let's create the perfect worker. But it kind of goes to that Foucault. Oh, no. like the like the um the creation of like a docile person. Yeah, 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 that, yeah and and how because we do exist in this capitalist society, those kinds of decisions that are made of making the skilled worker are very much about that uniformity, that like presenting them as a certain, almost kind of an object in the clockwork. Um, It's funny you should bring up Foucault because that brings me to chapter three. (laughs) (laughs) What Um, a nice little segue. I I started with with a story that's really stuck with me of a time that I was... Um, there on a very quiet Friday night and um, I was just standing at a register and there was absolutely nobody around and also nothing to do. So usually if we weren't serving customers, we were expected to be loading stock from out back into the store or um, or doing um, recovery is what they would call it, which is where you're um, just tidying things, putting things back where they, where they belong because uh, <laughs> as anyone else who's worked in retail knows, people are not particularly <laughs> considerate when it comes to putting back things that they've taken off of racks but anyway I digress (laughs) um a person who I worked with um from another area she walked over because she saw that I was just um I was actually not doing nothing I was reading a pamphlet about a about a doona cover I remember this very clearly (laughs) it was like a very it was a very fancy doona cover (laughs) so this person came over to me and said Caitlin um just so you know you should make sure that you look like you're working because the managers watch us over the security cameras oh and maybe so she went back to her area and I was like oh thank you I, I I will and I was kind of like oh I'll just finish reading the pamphlet I'll do that in a second because I'm, I'm not good at taking good advice <laughs> um and then not five minutes later a manager like a big manager like the kind of people who kind of generally work in an office in in a setting like this who you don't necessarily see day to day came up to me like like they came and found me and said Caitlin you need to be working why aren't you working oh my goodness so it was true <laughs> Yeah, they don't even necessarily, I think, care about whether you're truly working or not. I think that they just want the um, the vision of someone working. They actually just want the performativity of someone working. So in that chapter, I explore Foucault's ideas around surveillance. <laughs> because there's actually multiple ways in which people who are working in retail are surveyed in that way. Um, not just through security cameras, because that one's almost too on the nose. Um, (laughs) um, I do think that's quite typical and I believe illegal. Big Brother is watching. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I believe that it might be against labour laws. It wasn't quite clear, but I think in some cases, potentially in some states, it is illegal to be watching staff over the security cameras that are explicitly made for security for surveillance purposes like that I hope it is I think that's really messed up um yeah I've definitely heard of other places uh certain cafes come to mind that I know of uh where there are security cameras in there and the boss has said very explicitly to staff I check those monitors and screens to make sure that you're working now the funny thing is 
is that the staff kind of undermine him because they know that he doesn't pay for the security subscription. And so um, one of them even put tape over the camera just in case the day comes when he does pay for the subscription. That whole idea of just placing that camera there, saying to staff, I check this, I'm going to watch you. It's the exact idea of the panopticon, that someone doesn't even need to be watching. It's just the threat of someone watching that that makes you regulate yourself, regulate your own behaviour so that you don't need direct actions to, to discipline someone. Yeah, um, but there's actually a lot of other ways that people are surveyed in these lines of work. And some of them, are, I think, are not necessarily what you would consider surveillance, but they function that way. One of them actually being name tags is a really interesting one. What do you think the reason why people wear name tags? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, usually it's it seems to be to create that relationship, whether it is performative or not, between the customer and the person working to try and build that rapport in a very artificial but very quick way. So I actually think that's like 20% of the reason. Oh, there's a f- what's the 80%? <laughs> Completely accountability for your actions. It's if you if you do something wrong or if you are sort of rude or perceived as rude to a customer, they can complain about you by name. I don't think it's a necessarily a familial thing. I think it's more of an accountability thing and therefore a surveillance thing. So you never know which customer is going to be the one that's going to complain about you. Even And, and I think we all probably know this, having worked in any kind of service work, um, but sometimes people will complain for not very good reasons, um, mm. not very reasonable reasons. And have you thought of any of those situations where staff will rebel against these like actions from employers there are definitely um big acts of rebellion but people are very clever and they know they sort of implicitly know these things they know in the the ways that they're being surveyed and they know the ways that they'll be punished if they if they're caught doing something um but they also know how to skirt the rules i found some really interesting examples from some of the previous literature there was this ethnography of cocktail waitresses in casinos in the united states specifically in reno which is sort of a smaller las vegas it's also a big casino town but it doesn't have kind of the same connotations as Las Vegas. So this anthropologist went and worked as a cocktail waitress for for a year, um, which sounds like a, a big ask, honestly. Just about, yeah. yeah, yeah. It sounds like a horrible job. Um, I mean, quite the uh, participant. Uh, part of participant observation. Mm. So. Yeah. And the interesting example that I remember from the ethnography was that there were very, very specific requirements for the uniforms and the clothes that they were wearing. So uh, this this role, in a way, you could say it was highly sexualized in that the women were required to, to dress in a in a way that was um, revealed their bodies. And that was sort of the selling point of the, of the cocktail waitress themselves to try and, you know, get people to spend money. And one of the requirements was high-heeled shoes of a very specific height. They had to be black high-heeled shoes. You have to supply your own. The rest of the uniform was supplied by the casino. But, of course, you're standing on your feet for eight hours straight. Yeah, Um, I can't (laughs) imagine anything worse than heels for more than half an hour, honestly. (laughs) You can probably do permanent damage. When I worked in um, retail, we didn't have any kind of rule like that. Like, you had to have professional enclosed black shoes. But you were also on your feet all day and... Oh my God. Not only were you standing all day, you were walking all day. I would be literally barely be able to walk after shifts. I don't know if anyone else was suffering the same way I was, but legitimately like some of the most memorable pain I've experienced. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I cannot imagine what it would be like to have to wear heels. And these are kind of like high heels on a shift. But the form of resistance that they do is that they follow the 
letter of the rule but not kind of the spirit of it so they will wear ugly shoes <laughs> like, <laughs> like orthopedic shoes whatever's gonna give them the most comfort under those kinds of conditions and management didn't like it but because those were the official rules and they do have a union behind them they were able to get just like that small kind of um resistance so the resistance always it always needs to occur within the rules which everyone is kind of pretty pretty cognizant of like people really are aware of these these forms of control that they're under they're not ignorant of them at but people find very very clever tactics to to just have some kind of freedom some semblance of freedom I myself have sort of um participated in sort of I don't want to say banishing (laughs) people (laughs) but but like there are ways that you can sort of put them at a disadvantage without them realizing it and it always needs to be without them realizing you can't yell at them because you get fired and then you don't have a job but for instance if there was some kind of discount or some kind of way that I could be doing this better to save them money if they were especially rude to me I could just not put those in place I'm still not breaking any rules by the company I would just usually err on the side of trying to save people money if I could in kind of both of the service roles that I've had but you know I can I can very well take that away (laughs) (laughs) and you know under those kinds of conditions as well even if I was caught suppose by by my employer you know I can make an argument that I was um making them more money I actually had this um epiphany recently because I mean as I'm talking about this it's just weird how much the things that I talked about in my thesis have sort of ramped up in this year because I did made a reference to the I want to talk to your manager haircut. <laughs> oh, which you mean the Karen haircut? Yeah. Well, back then, back then in my days in 2018, <laughs> um, way back, we didn't have a word for that. But then it kind of became Karen, and then Karen has kind of taken on a real life of its own since COVID. I actually sort of struggled to to articulate this concept of the kind of person who abuses retail stuff and how there is a stereotype around it that it's like a woman of a certain age and a certain economic bracket and you know a certain race with a certain haircut (laughs) (laughs) I had this epiphany the other day that service work jobs like 99% of them with technology that we have right now actually don't need to exist at all and the only reason we that they do exist is partially to maintain jobs like so that people have jobs and also because of that aspect of expectations like culturally embedded expectations of what they should get out of a retail interaction I think that's kind of the only things obviously it would actually probably be a bad thing if um, service work was eliminated just because so many people would lose their jobs like it's kind of the poorest people in western industrialized society who have service work jobs it's sort of Mm. like towards the bottom so uh, automation it has the potential for so much good in the world like people don't have to do these jobs anymore but what it actually means in reality is that um people don't have jobs people don't have jobs yeah the benefits don't go to the people who are getting alleviated of doing those kinds of hard jobs it's going to the people on the top yeah I sort of wonder how those power dynamics would shift as well Mm. whether there would be more complaints made directly to people who are you know who usually don't see it the ones who sit in the office who are observing through those cameras you know I wonder how the conversation around it would change because of that shift in where the power sits Mm, that's a really interesting point actually because I I also kind of think that a function of the of the situation where complaints about a company go to the person who's working at the desk like the person with the least power it works that way so the person with the least power gets all of the complaints about the things that they have the least control over Um, and and I think it's manufactured that way because you don't really want people to be able to 
complain to people who can change things. Yeah, and then it's only if someone specifically says, Mm. you know... Can I talk to the manager? Yeah. And that's what that's about. Like, I actually... I don't know. When you talk to customers, uh, rude customers, (laughs) you get the sense they don't really take a moment to think about what you do and do not have control over in that moment. The Mm. answer to anyone listening is almost always very little. Actually, one example that I remember reading from your thesis, and it's it's the very, very start, um, that first vignette that you offer um, about that woman who's buying the pants. And <laughs> That's a 100% true story. Oh my gosh. Um, could you could you tell us the story? I can tell you the story. A, I suppose a Karen. <laughs> a Karen came into my store and came up to the bench where I was working and uh, asked to please buy a pair of pants that we do not stock from the brand Guess. Uh, <laughs> so she showed me the online Guess store and she was like, these pants, please. Now, I don't know if the people at home can, can find something strange about that situation of like someone coming into a department store and asking me to give them the pants that are on this website that we do not stock. She, of course, got angry at me because I had to deny her demand because it's just it's just not something that we do. But because you're in this sort of this interpersonal position where you're in a position kind of of servitude and, and they're in a position of power over you and you have very little wiggle room in that because of all of the methods of control. You have to be really nice to them. And it's so difficult to explain something completely unreasonable to a person without being, like, a little bit rude. Yeah, and there's a certain language that you need to default Mm. to because, again, you have to portray this kind of performance and the language that you use is very crafted. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately is a word that... I definitely have used a lot in the um, the past few months. Unfortunately, we're not open um, in my own uh, workplace. And, and the apologising as well. And even feeling the need to have to apologise mm. when you're right, you are at the lowest position of power. Like, I can't control the opening hours of a store. That's, that's not my choice, but mm. I'm so sorry to have caused this inconvenience. And it wasn't until someone actually said to me, you don't need to apologise for doing the right thing or for following the rules or maintaining those opening hours that you're told to maintain but it made me step back and think why did I feel the need to have to apologize so profusely to these angry people it's the habitus of the the service (laughs) worker I actually think a really interesting example of this is the phenomenon of people having a customer service voice oh my gosh yeah (laughs) and there's that horrible moment that you speak in that kind of tone to someone you know Mm. Um, yeah Mm. or I, I don't know, uh, like after a really long day of, of, of kind of embodying that role, I would sometimes come home and like speak to a housemate like that. Like they would ask me a question and I'll be like, hi, let me look it up. It's not only it's not only kind of the disposition of your voice, like like the way that your voice actually sounds, it's even kind of your accent. Um, the intonations that you <laughs> intonations use. Intonations that you use. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think part of it comes from repetition uh, because you do end up saying the same thing over and over again when you have sort of repetitive transactions. I'll mention that my thesis focused mainly on um, closed retail, specifically um, department store retail, because that's where my experience was. But I think a lot of this stuff is absolutely universal to any kind of service work with like exceptions and variations between different roles. 
so the job that I had for about five years in service work that was sort of an unusual service job was working largely with um, children and school children to be exact and um, I worked with them both interacting with them in kind of unusual ways but also I did work in the gift store of this place so I was having monetary transactions with children Uh, and children are great customers like they're not and the reason why they're great customers is because they're not actually customers they're not having that interaction with you on that basis um like they they are kind of beginning to learn to understand how you're meant to interact with a service person from habitus like they're watching their parents they're watching the way that people do it on tv they're watching the way that their peers do it you just pick these things up but you're at this point where they are not going to complain to the manager about you if you (laughs) if you do something wrong i always find children very pleasant in those kinds of interactions even though sometimes children um can't count money (laughs) but you're right I think it's because they haven't learned about those power dynamics from observation just yet Mm. children are the ideal customers (laughs) I don't know if you've experienced this but I've I've found from my own experiences and talking to the people around me that if you want to actually use those specific skills and say, hey, my background is anthropology, the only real time that it feels like it's possible is if you have done a PhD or if you've done that higher level of education than just doing your bachelor in anthropology. But you've taken a slightly different... Yeah, that's um, what I thought until... <laughs> so, yeah, um, I got a I got a graduate job at a consulting firm that um, specialises in human-centred design. And as part of that, they, they do employ researchers and um, including anthropologists. There's quite a few people with anthropology backgrounds there. Is it quite common, would you say, for someone to have done honours? Depends on what level they're at, I suppose, um, in the organisation. People who are at much like higher levels of seniority, um, typically, if they do have an anthropology background, would have a master's. I don't think there are any PhD PhDs in anthropology there, as far as I know. I could be, I could stand corrected though. I was sort of aware that there were these alternate pathways in things like consulting for anthropology skill sets. Um, and part of the reason was actually that um, in my applied ethnography course that I did in 2016, I believe, we actually went on an excursion to the place I'm working now. Um, so oh, it's really? Think place. Yeah, we did. That's so <laughs> yeah, cute. we went on a little excursion um, just to see a way that um, anthropology might be applied in a corporate setting. So that was that was very memorable. And um, funny thing, one of the people who was on that excursion with me actually was a graduate last year um, with Think Place as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they wow. got two two people just from that one class. So I'd actually intended very much to go down the um, further education route because I do see myself continuing in anthropology. I I actually really, really loved doing my thesis. Um, I think I had an unusually good time with my honours thesis compared to a lot of other people, which is great. And I hope that the enthusiasm that I talk about it with kind of um, shows that. Um, yeah, so what, what kind of position can you, or what kind of thought can you bring to the table? Mm-hmm. Uh, like what kind of consulting is it? So um, I say human-centred design, that's kind of the, the general theme. They do some other kinds of work, but there is kind of specifically work in user research especially, um, which is actually what I'm doing. Could you explain that um, user a little research. bit too? 
So let's say that a government agency had a website for people who wanted to find a really good hairdresser. They probably wouldn't. That's probably not a government service, but let's just say. Um, So maybe you can assume that it would have features like a map of different hairdressers, a list of them, and then maybe some kind of function where you could like filter them out so that you could find the one that's right for you. So what you would do for user research is you would find people who would be um, who would be using that product, uh, that, that service, and you really understand their needs and then you shape the product around their needs. Mm, yeah. So really uh, bringing the people focus into it. Absolutely, yeah. And the way that works is basically through applied ethnography. So you're doing um, ethnographic interviews very much with the kind of methods that um, anthropologists use, like op- open-ended questions that can uh, splinter from from topic to topic um, really long term. The only kind of um, caveat to this kind of applied ethnography is that anthropology is typically, in an academic sense, a long-term research engagement. You'll be in the field for a long time. That's almost never the case or, or kind of is never the case for these kinds of um, of uh, research projects just because that's not it's not really feasible for a lot of them. So what kind of time frame would you be looking at more? You would be having maybe one to two hour engagements with people, um, with individual people, maybe for a, a couple of months just of research. But so you wouldn't be having necessarily those repeat contacts with people. You wouldn't be sort of living beside them. I suppose participant observation isn't quite the, yeah. the, the method. <laughs> just yeah, didn't watch them for two hours. Yeah. I would love to see a digital service that's been designed because it's been informed by um, participant observation. (laughs) I I think you could probably find something really interesting. But it's a really, really interesting work and um, and user research specifically because it's what I'm doing right now. So I've really um, taken a liking to it. And you can sort of see very real ways that you can make people's lives a little, just a little bit better because, you know, I think everyone's probably had a bad experience with a government, an online government service before. Uh, I don't think that they would probably disagree with me that they're not all perfect, but there really is a real push to involve users in the process of designing government services. And and I think in my line of work, see that happening all the time. Mm. Other kinds of work that Think Place does with like within sort of an ethnography space, um, they do non-user research interviews so these are kinds of um, research engagements potentially to find insights on some kind of specific problem let's say uh you had a a a group of vulnerable people who are experiencing some kind of specific problem um uh like think place might be um might be involved to reach out to those people and to get an ethnographic understanding of how they're experiencing that problem with an eye to um changing structures that are causing the problem not every day that you come across Mm. uh, organizations that actually do this kind of work so it's nice to see anthropological skills coming in handy and being used in a a different context to just teaching the next generation of anthropologists who might assume that their only possible work is really to then go and follow in those footsteps. Mm. I feel like its scope is very close to the ground. Like you do actually see 
changes in organizations being made. Typically, the kinds of changes that you can make as a consultant are very broadly structural and rather than revolutionary. <laughs> like you can't go in, into a government agency and be like, you need to completely change the law, even <laughs> even though maybe in many cases um, a, a really radical solution would actually do a lot of good. You need to kind of work within the structure. That's sort of the way that ThinkPlace works. They also have a, an ethics process for taking on new jobs as well. So they won't take on any jobs that don't contribute anything to the public good and they won't take on any jobs that are ethically dubious and they have quite a quite a specific framework for determining what jobs are ethically dubious. I think I remember reading that it's it's quite an interdisciplinary Oh yeah, space. for sure. Yeah. So it's definitely not just sort of social researchers. There are a few, but some of the other kinds of disciplines would be um, behavioural studies side, um, which maybe would more exist in psychology. A lot of the work is with government, but there is some with with NGOs uh, or other kinds of organisations. At the moment, um, for the last couple of months, I've been specifically working for one government agency. Uh, I've actually been embedded, so it means I'm essentially working there full time, which has been quite rewarding to be kind of getting to know the team there. It almost is like participant observation if I were studying them, (laughs) but I'm not. (laughs) I'm studying our users and um, the team is um, building this tool that that we hope will help a lot of people. I I won't say any more, but yeah, I've been, I've done 20, 22 interviews now um, since I started a couple months ago, which is quite a lot all over video conference, which is a bit of a pain. (laughs) I'd just like to uh, take a very sharp left um, turn and just uh, talk a bit about your communications with cartoon and artwork because I noticed you've got quite a knack for art um, and sometimes you use that as a medium to communicate different ideas or different topics. How did this all begin? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've actually got a fun backstory behind the art, um, which is that I used to have um, a relatively popular Tumblr blog <laughs> with my art, <laughs> but I gave it all up for anthropology. <laughs> I just stopped maintaining it um, when I started uni, essentially. Oh, okay. um, I was going to say... Was it this situation where you were given, you know, like Neo getting the two pills and anthropology's the blue pill and Tumblr's the red pill and you well, have to pick one? I have, I, what I've done in the end is combined them and made a big purple pill. Uh, I've been making some, some anthropology comics. So the, the main kind of one um, that I've done relatively recently, although not so recently anymore, was um, during the bushfires earlier this year. So for listeners who don't know, <laughs> I, I don't know how many the, those will be. We had um, the worst bushfires in Australian history um, in in January this year. I believe yeah. they were the worst. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> it I felt mean, like the worst if they weren't. Yeah, because, <laughs> I mean, it was a really long bushfire season too. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't just January. I just remember January because how... I experienced this on a personal level, which is what the comic was about, was the immense and suffocating amount of smoke that rolled into into Canberra. We had smoke so bad that we had to shut the place I was working at the time. Um, that was before I started my new job, um, which had never shut before for, for a reason like that um, in its entire 30 years of running. Yeah, uh, the, the sky was, was yellow to orange if... It wasn't really the sky that you were looking at, though. It was the air that you were looking at that was far closer, which is kind of partially what the comic was about. It was about the way that we were experiencing air at that time because it was considered dangerous to breathe. Um, People were advised to stay in their houses if possible. 
people were wearing gas masks when they went out, um, which was good practice for COVID. <laughs> um, yeah, which um, ironically, so there was a massive mask shortage at the time because it needed to be P2 masks. So those are masks that prevent any small particles from from getting through. But you can't use those for COVID because they will have a vent that lets mm. out your breath. So it defeats the purpose because it actually spreads your breath. But slightly ironically, I think more people were inclined to wear masks because of smoke than of COVID. But that's that's a yeah. different kind of... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um. Quite shockingly, actually, I think a couple of months ago, a report came out that like a, a significant amount of people in the ACT died. Um. It was found out later, in, indirectly due to the effects of the smoke. Mm. So, so the smoke was um like it was a real problem, and I think we can probably expect to see some long term um public health effects from it. Mm. But also, just from a personal um perspective, and I'm sure that you can relate to this, D. It was so miserable. It, it was. was. It was so stressful. It was also really, really hot, but you couldn't see the sun it was absolutely bizarre and and also the smoke very very easily permeated houses like um Mm. uh most houses i think you could really see it on the inside so even kind of the advice to stay indoors hopefully did something but probably not yeah because our houses aren't made to (laughs) houses are not made to keep that smoke that amount of smoke definitely yeah i mean like i don't think our lives are structured around the idea that we would have this kind of insane environmental disaster um because you know the fires were going on which were the worst in in history and oh my god the like the footage that was just coming in every day Mm. and the news every day it was so scary it was so so scary Mm. um but then like here in canberra where the smoke was really especially bad i think at times i think like we had a really specific problem with it just because of the geographical shape of um of the act yeah it was it was really shocking so what the comic is about (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was interested by the way that I realized that everyone had changed the way that they experienced air because air is this thing that always fades into the background because it's literally invisible and literally around us all the time we don't know what it's like to not have air and you know as we know from habitus like things that just are always there and are just completely normal you don't notice them it's only things that become exceptional to the norm that people notice it's kind of the same with physical pain like you don't really notice the sensation of having a body until you experience some kind of like discomfort with it and then the part that's feeling discomfort suddenly becomes really um noticeable so air suddenly became an object it's it's not an object in normal experience of every day it just doesn't Mm. exist but the air suddenly became not only an object but like a malicious object that was like harmful so Mm. um so you know every time you took a breath you couldn't help but thinking about what you were breathing in because it was it was visible it was it was visible and it was opaque it was literally opaque like you couldn't see meters in front of you at times and even that when you would take it in you could physically feel you could yeah that um, inhalation mm. and and you just knew that that was not a good thing for you. You knew you were breathing in toxins. Yeah, it was legitimately very toxic. And also the experience of the smoke rolling in was really interesting because it does roll in like a big object. The first time I saw the smoke roll in, I was actually it was it's a shame because it was a really nice night. I was at a friend's engagement party, which was by um, Lake Belly Griffin, which is the big lake in Canberra. And we saw the smoke from the fires from the coast um, kind of just roll over Mount Ainsley. And and then suddenly, about 10 minutes later, you could see it, this big opaque object, solid object just moving towards you. And then when it hit you, because, you know, when you get closer, it's smoke. It's, um, it's not actually something you can touch, even though it looks like you can touch it. It's the smell that hits you first. And then the smell just never goes away. You can you, you sort of start to get used to it. 
Uh, but then, you know, when you smell it a little bit more, you're like, oh yeah, that's right. Everything smells of smoke from fires that are happening like a three hour drive away, which is just kind of gives you a scale of how bad they were. Yeah. So um, far away. But then when you're feeling the effects, it makes it real. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the comic was about that. It was, um, I, and the reason I kind of wanted to do it in a comic form is firstly, just because I, I kind of do have the skill. Um, I won't say I'm like an extremely skilled artist, but it's something like I have spent a lot of time in my life building up and I felt, you know, I feel guilty when I'm not using it. <laughs> and also because there is this real magic to be able to, to the comic format, because you're able to combine visuals like visualizations of information and also words so it's like I feel like it's like this super quick way to impart lots of complex information fast and in a way that everyone can understand which is like awesome I um, actually one of my huge pet peeves with any kind of academic article is when it's completely unreadable Um, just because I I am of the opinion that academic work should be kind of for everyone um, when possible like yeah Um, so one of my aims with it was to make it accessible to the people around me who were suffering like me like I wanted to try and express what I felt like everyone was feeling um, in a way that everyone could see and it really took off people really liked it it was good yeah i remember yeah it got a lot of um got a lot of traction on twitter (laughs) actually on anthropology twitter because because i kind of framed it as being like a like an ethnography it's um it's an ethnography of our experiences with the fires it's funny looking back on that because at the time it felt like the most horrible thing in the world. Like it felt like this is the worst thing that has ever happened to me, basically. Um, like this is, I, I just can't believe that the city that I'm living in, which by the way, usually has some of the cleanest air in the world. And then it just became legitimately unlivable. Like, mm. yeah. Um, so I wanted to capture the way that people were feeling about that in kind of an embodied way when it comes to experiencing the world around them and the sensations of living in that world. Yeah, it's it's so interesting and quite the um, the challenge, I suppose, because we, when you think of ethnographies, you think of this really. I mean, you don't think of a nice, quick thing you're going to read in five minutes. It's usually quite an in-depth story, obviously capturing a moment in time, just like comics do. But it just because of the format of it can instantly disengage certain people from mm. those issues. And it could be that I have a bias towards anthropology, but I think that ethnographies, provided they're ethical and <laughs> um, <laughs> done right within all of the um, like the rules of the game, um, <laughs> social field again, um, but they can be just so rich and you can learn so much and just have those moments of wow this is so eye-opening for me mm-hmm. and thinking about culture whether it's your own or a different culture um, it, it can be quite a rich experience so then to convey that and, and keep that richness I mean I, I don't mean to be trying to sell your comics everyone go subscribe to Caitlin's Twitter um, but you should but it was really nice to see someone engaging with anthropology in a different medium we are running out of time though so (laughs) just just to finish up i'd like to ask you if you could give someone one piece of advice as they're coming towards maybe the end of their studies of anthropologies what would it be being open to new experiences for sure um and and having the openness to be able to i guess change my own habitus uh, to be able to to see things in a different 
in a different point of view. And, and what I mean by that, um, I'm definitely talking about um, my job at Think Place because um, it's just not any kind of world that I had any idea about. I didn't really know what a consultant did. <laughs> Um, And I definitely didn't know about human-centered design or anything, and I had no idea about user research. Um, And I I guess to reframe, um, I think you can can learn very quickly when you open yourself to new experiences. Well, that was it, my interview with Caitlin Setnicker. Today's episode was produced by me, Dee, with help from all the other familiar strangers. Our executive producer is Matthew Fong. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes or dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the familiar strange, not the strange familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find all the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. While you're there, also check out our latest blog post, which is about navigating feminism and Jewish law in modern Orthodox communities. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music is by Pete Dabrow, and special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange.